Galatians 2, verses 15 and 16. Verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful truth that we are not justified by the works of the law, and that there's nothing that we can say or do to earn our own salvation. Lord, knowing that we are justified by faith alone in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Lord, we thank you that Christ gave his life as a ransom for us and became a curse on our account so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Lord, we praise his holy name. Amen. All right. Thank you, Roger, for reading our text today. So we are starting a series here for the next three weeks. Ken, you can put that slide up. Um, Our vision renewal series. We do this at the beginning of every year. And this year we are looking at thankfulness for the foundations of our gathering growing and giving so our mission statement says we gather for the gospel grow in the gospel give out the gospel for the glory of God and over the next three weeks we're going to look at what what is the foundation by which we do those very things so today we're going to be looking at justification justification being the foundation of why we can gather as God's people, and it's the really the roots of which all the rest flow out. And then next week, we're going to look at sanctification, the grace of sanctification given to God's people so that we can be growing in the gospel. And so out of the root of justification comes sanctification. And then in turn, as we think about giving out the gospel, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of conversion. And how the promise of conversion should spur us to share the gospel with others. And especially, in fact, you know, I, I feel like when I get to conversion, and, and probably all of these I'm preaching to the choir, but when I get to conversion, I'm preaching to the choir because you're here saying, I've been converted. <laughs> I've experienced this. And in turn, because we experience this, because this is true, this radical transformation that comes about by the gospel, we should be sharing it. We should be giving out this gospel. So today we're going to be looking at, uh, looking at justification. But before we do, I just want to encourage you to come out this evening for our prayer and praise service. An opportunity to gather together as God's people, entire families sitting in pews, singing together. Um, and then taking time together to pray, whether in family units or across family units or inviting another family to come in with your family, praying together uh, for all sorts of different things. And then in turn, on top of that, we're going to be using tonight to kick off our prayer week. So over the, we're going to have some pamphlets out that just different days of praying over the next this next week as we move here into 2020 and praying for family ministry on Monday and praying for adult ministries on Tuesday and praying for local outreach on Wednesday and praying for global outreach on 
Thursday and praying for the stewardship of all the resources God has given us on Friday and praying for the worship, the gathering of God's people on Saturday and then the leadership of God's church on Sunday. And so we're, we're striving to be dependent. We are dependent people. If, if what keeps you from prayer is the fact that you feel like you've got everything under control and you do not understand the world you live in. We are dependent people, dependent upon God. As, as Christians, we are utterly dependent on Him, as we'll see in justification. But that, in turn, flows out into every aspect of our life. We're dependent upon His grace. And so one of the ways we show our dependence is by raising up our voices in prayer to him, by calling out to our God, who is great and glorious. One of the, one of the verses that always comes to my mind and fuels my prayers is the verse where we're told that if he did not withhold his own son, how shall he not also give you all things? Now, that, that doesn't fuel our prayer to be able to say, I want a million dollars, because it's, it's his will, not mine. But in his sovereign and loving and gracious will, he did not withhold his son. And therefore, as we call out to him, we have a father who gives good gifts to his children, who cares for them in ways beyond our comprehension. Sometimes the struggles we face are the very things we need to be drawn out of our own pride and our own self-sufficiency. And where does that come from? From a gracious and loving God. A God who seeks to show his love for us in ways beyond our comprehension and beyond our understanding. So I hope you'll come out tonight, join with us. And obviously, I'm a little passionate about it. <laughs> I think prayer is so significant, and hopefully you'll come out tonight and pray with us. I'm also excited about this, this study here, looking at justification, sanctification, and conversion. So today, let's move into our uh, sermon with our main point. You are to live in thankfulness to God for the grace that justifies you. You are to live in thankfulness to God for the grace that justifies you. As we begin to understand what justification is, as we begin to understand that it, it solely comes to us by grace, undeserved favor, our heart should not help but be grateful for what has been given to us, and in turn, lives lived out in gratefulness. Lives not, not fueled by our gratefulness, but overflowing in gratefulness. Well, I mean, what fuels the life we live? It is, is the life given to us by the grace of God. It is, it is the faith granted to us. It is this justification that's been given. These truths of God fuel our lives, but that life, if we truly understand what we have in our salvation, is overflowing in gratitude. Can't imagine, can't believe what God has given to us. Again, I'll just remind you, it's not, it's not your parents reminding you to say thank you when you get something you didn't really want or didn't really like, but you know it's the 
polite thing to do. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about thankfulness here. This is true, real, sincere thankfulness that as you, as you gaze upon what's been given to you by God through His Son, Jesus Christ, you are sincerely and utterly thankful. Another word I've been using to describe that is satisfied. You are satisfied in what's been given. And so today we're going to be looking at justification. And hopefully as we do, our hearts, our hearts will overflow in this kind of gratitude. Lord, give us hearts of thankfulness as we look into this glorious truth of justification. Lord, may, may we be overcome by it. It is such a glorious gift. Lord, may we, as we are overcome by it, raise our voices as we respond later in song, glorifying your name. In the name of your Son, in the name of the Spirit, for you, the triune God, are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And Lord, may this praise not just come from us, may it come from across this globe and across this city. Lord, may we join in with voices at Faith Bible Church, or Ridgewood Baptist Church, at Bible Baptist, at Mosaic, at Mission, at Iglesia Camino al Cielo, voices raised in glory to our God. But not just here, Lord, whether it's in Atlanta uh, with Pastor Ryan there, whether it's in Lubumbashi and, and Pastor Seth there, whether it's in Zambia with Pastor Chopo there, Lord, may our voices join with them and the chorus of the heavenly angels in bringing you glory together. May we see how amazing this time is as we hear from your word, as we see glimpses of you, and as we join together in your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is justification? I thought we could start there. What is justification? And so I went ahead and put up here, hopefully it's large enough for you to read, a quote from our uh, pastoral team, Affirmation of Faith, that describes what we believe justification is. We believe that just, and you can find this on our website if it's too small, you can go there later and look it up, or, or now you pull your phone, just keep listening <laughs> while you do it. Um, we believe that justification is a judicial act of God by which he pardons the sinner and declares him righteous in his sight. Justification is not based on man's character, good works, or religious merit, but rather it is based solely on the imputed righteousness of Jesus. We further affirm that faith is the means by which the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to the sinner's account and that this faith is a gracious gift of God. The evidence of saving faith is a transformed life marked by the presence of the Spirit's fruit. We go on to state, and we're going to be looking at this next week, that we believe that all whom God grants this justifying grace will also receive His sanctifying grace. And so we're going to look at that 
as well next week. And in turn, we believe that all who have been justified will persevere in the faith. That this justification is this foundation by which we then can can in turn live lives that are sanctified, persevere in faith to the end, that through justification we end up reaching glorification. Not that sanctification or the holy life is the same as justification. We'll see this morning that we cannot merge them into one thing. They're two distinct things. Yet they are intricately connected to one another. And that the one who is justified will be sanctified, will persevere to the end, and will be glorified. And so what do we understand? Four things that I pull out of this to help us understand what justification is. Justification is a judicial act of God. It is a legal act. So we're in a, we're in a time today where Legal actions and trials are kind of on the forefront at the moment. So we have a president who's on trial for impeachment, and we have two sides presenting their views, and a judicial act will occur at the end of that. Or we have a judicial system. We are blessed with a judicial system. And as people are convicted of a crime are accused of a crime, they are brought before a judge or a jury, and uh, the facts are then presented by both sides, by the prosecution and the defense, and then in turn, the judge or the jury will grant a legal declaration, a judicial act. And, and so in, in understanding justification, we're saying this is a judicial act of God. This is a legal declaration by God. Now, in our terms, we tend to think guilty, not guilty, right? And we're going to see that there, there is the aspect in which God rightly should give a guilty verdict to every person that stands before him. And yet, when we come to justification, we are looking not at the guilty verdict. We are saying, how can I get the not guilty verdict? But not guilty is not enough to describe what God does here. So it's a declaration of pardon. So when, when you're standing before a judge or a jury convicted of a crime, and the jury or the judge comes back with a not guilty vote, they are not declaring your innocence. They are just declaring that you're not guilty. There's reasons why it's worded that way. Because sometimes someone is not guilty because there is not enough evidence to prove that they are guilty. Or there is a reasonable doubt. But a reasonable doubt doesn't equal you didn't do the crime. Right? Right. But this is not just a declaration by God that you're not guilty, that you didn't do the crime, because God already knows you did do the crime, right? We're going to see in a minute who needs justification. You did do the crime. So if you did do the crime, if all men are guilty before God, then what is necessary? A declaration of pardon is necessary. And that's what's going on here. God declares us pardoned from our sins. 
Why? Because we're really sorry? Because we felt really bad? Because we knew we did wrong, and now we're going to do right. None of those would be enough. None of those would satisfy the justice of God. God just can't say, well, I'll just overlook that this time. And that's where we get to the second, the second two points there, C and D, the imputation of guilt. When Jesus came, and this is why Jesus is so important to justification, when Jesus came, he fulfilled the law perfectly. Where we fell short, Jesus fulfilled it. And so, in turn, when he hangs on a cross, and we're told that, that be, he became sin for us, our sin was imputed, was put upon him. He took our sin, and with it, he took the wrath of God for it. He took the punishment of sin for it. So sin was imputed. The guilt of our sin was imputed upon Jesus Christ. We're told the righteous for the unrighteous. So Jesus takes that sin upon himself. So our sin, all that would disqualify us, from a right standing before God, from God being able not only to say not guilty, but pardon us from sin and declare us righteous. All of that, all that kept us from that, Jesus takes. It's imputed to him. But in turn, letter D there, the imputation of righteousness. And this is where I would say, the judicial decree of God is not just that we're not guilty or that we're pardoned from our sin. What we're told in justification is that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to us. We are seen as righteous in Jesus Christ. There are many ways that we can describe this imputation of righteousness. Um, a number of people have used the illustration of the fact that we all are beggars and, 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 and dirty and, and ragged and we're coming into the presence of the king and all our dirt and rags and mud and muck all over us. And the king, the king will not accept us into his presence like that. We must be clean. And so our, our dirt of sin and muck is, is clean from us by, by Jesus taking it on the cross. But now we're clean. What are we going to do? Put on our old rags again? Well, the king still will not accept us with our old rags. What do we need? We need the clothing of the prince. We need the righteous clothing of his, the king's son. And so we're given this clothing so that we can then go into the presence of the king. And when we go into the presence of the king, he says we are acceptable because of the clothes of his son. It's this imputation of righteousness that is foreign to us, that is alien from us, that is distinct from us. They are not our clothes. Now, in that illustration, there are some aspects. All illustrations fall apart somewhere. 
There's some aspects in which you could get things wrong. Maybe you think, but I look really good in the king's clothes. So when I went in, he saw my face. He said, you know what, you're pretty good looking, and you got nice clothes now, so I'll accept you. That's not true. God knows everything about us. Let me tell you, there is nothing pretty there. There is nothing acceptable in us. When he accepts us, he is accepting the righteousness of his son. See, uh, a number of religions get this wrong, even religions claiming to be Christian. The Roman Catholicism comes to mind. They seek to, they seek to um, unite some aspect of us with some aspect of Christ. A.A. A. Strong, when he was writing his commentary, um, used the illustration of a train. And the, the engine is Jesus Christ, and that engine is pure white, not a speck of dirt on it. Nothing, nothing is off at all. It is pure, spotless. And then connected to him, and he used the, the connectors as, as faith, connecting to Jesus Christ, were all the boxcars. And the boxcars are filthy dirty, but not only that, filled with dung. They are disgusting. And in the Roman Catholic view of justification, that as they're connected to Jesus Christ, Jesus infuses them with grace and righteousness and goodness. And so in infusing them with that, they are, they are to a degree cleansed. And so as God the Father then looks at the train, he looks at Jesus, but he then also looks at the boxcars and he says, well, Jesus is righteous and look, they now have some righteousness too, so I'll accept them. But that, inf- that infusion of righteousness can be lost. It's what they call committing a moral sin. And or a mortal sin. And committing this sin will then take some of your righteousness away, maybe all of it away. And in turn, you have to go to the sacraments to be infused again with righteousness. And in fact, as much as they want to say it, and many will say, I believe in justification by faith alone. They'll say that. But how does that infusion occur? It occurs through your baptism at the beginning of life. That through the ba- sac- sacrament of baptism, you gain this infusion of righteousness. And then as you live, you lose your infusion of righteousness. And then to get it back, you have to do penance, the sacrament of penance, in order to gain back some infusion of righteousness. And there's constant struggle. Ultimately, they divide justification up into three parts. This initial justification, and then your your life of what we would describe as sanctification, but they see it under justification as well, and then ultimate justification. And their argument is that no one can really know if they're ultimately justified because you don't know how much righteousness you have. Because depending on how you live and how many sacraments you do and what you do, you don't know how much you have. And therefore, you don't know if at the time when God ultimately declares people righteous, whether you will be declared justified or not. You don't know. What they do is they wrap together Jesus with us. 
thinking that there is some inherent goodness within mankind that enables him to participate in this act of justification. It's what is often described in theology as synergism, that that this justification is a work of both God and man together. They work together to accomplish it. We believe the Bible presents us with a very different picture. We believe, theologically, it would be monergism, that it is an act of God. Because if it depended on us at all, it would fail. That's why the Roman Catholic Church has to say, no one can really know if they're justified or not. But in my Bible, Paul presents us with the fact that we can know that we are justified. Why? Because it's an act of God. Not of us. And so the same train analogy. Yes, you have Jesus, the spotless white engine. Yes, you have the boxcars, dirty, full of dumb. But when, G, when, when God the Father looks down to accept us as the boxcars, all he sees is the engine. All he sees. Our sins imputed to him, and he bears it. And his righteousness, his righteousness overcomes it. That's how how gloriously full the righteousness of Jesus Christ is, that he was able to bear our sins, and he still has righteousness to spare. Righteousness that he gives to us, so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us, he sees him. I think it was Martin Luther who described our justification as we are dung heaps. They like to use dung for some reason. I think there's probably a good reason for that, though. Our sinfulness, a dung heap covered with gold. It's still a dung heap. That's who we are. We're sinners. But the gold of Jesus Christ covering us. And that's what we're accepted on. Not, not on us. Not on us. And that's the importance of imputation. It's imputation, not infusion. It's given to us. We don't somehow participate in that. It is rather given to us. And in fact, our text here plainly tells us that it is not by the works of the law that someone is justified. Our works cannot add to it. It's monergistic. It's not synergistic. The the object of faith in our text here, look in verse 16, Yet we know a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith, what? In Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the object. He is the one that does the justifying work, the basis of the justifying work that God grants to us. So as you look at our text, the first question I want to ask about our text Our text obviously uses the word justification, so I felt like we needed to have that definition as we go in here and we read this. Second, as we go into verse 15, who needs justification? Who needs justification? Now, we kind of have to know the story that's going on here in Galatians 2. So in Galatians 2, Paul and Barnabas are in Galatia, and, uh, and they are with the church, no, I'm sorry, they're in Antioch, and they're with the church. I just lost my notes here. 
Um, let's go back to verse 1. i, I got to put us in the right context. I know we're in the book of Galatians. He's writing to Galatians. But there, in the 14th year, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. We went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, who was not circum- forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. Yet because false brothers secretly brought in who slipped out to spy out our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. All right, so here they are in Jerusalem. Paul's going back to make sure that Jerusalem and the apostles there are for the gospel going out to the Gentiles. He believes this is a mission he was sent on by God. So he wants to make sure, though, that the church is on board with it, which the church is overall, and yet there are some in that midst who are not. Verse 6, from those who seem to be influential, what they were make no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, uncircumcised, non-Jews, circumcised Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me, through mine, to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, so they're the, they're, the, they're the main pastors of the church in Jerusalem, James, the brother of Jesus, Cephas is another name for Peter, John, who would be John, the beloved disciple, who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles. Right? So, and they would go to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So here is the church of Jerusalem affirming Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. So now we come to Cephas meeting up with, P- with Paul and Barnabas in Antioch. Verse 11. But then Cephas came to Antioch. And I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. You're like, wow. I mean, this is Peter, the apostle Peter here. I mean, this is, this is an influential person, yet Paul opposes him to the face. Why? For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So his influence had influenced the other Jews that were in Galatia, or in uh, Antioch so as they separated from the Gentiles specifically in their eating their fellowship time they weren't fellowshipping with them any longer so much so so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy and when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Which leads us into verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. All right? See, if you read that all by itself, it kind of sounds like Paul's, Paul's kind of elevating the Jews, right? Wow. I'm a Jew by birth. I'm not a Gentile sinner. But what does he then say? Yet 
We know. Okay, we know. Why? Well, I think there's, there's two ways to understand this. And, and I, think, I think they're both meant to be understood in the text. One is that Jews by birth who truly understand the Old Testament will never come to the conclusion that they are justified by the law. True Judaism of the Old Testament never claimed justification by the law. Never. They had a whole system that affirmed that they would not keep the law and therefore had to make sacrifices, knowing that those sacrifices were only a covering and that they awaited, awaited a day in which a true sacrifice would be given for their sins. I mean, that's what the Old Testament teaches us, and that ultimately leads us to Jesus Christ so that a true Jew who understood the Old Testament rightly would never affirm justification by the work of the law. But what happens in time is that Jesus comes and creates the church and what is eventually called Christianity. Christianity replaces true Judaism. Judaism tended to, tended to cause them to see this promised ethnic people of God, although they would allow others in through proselytization. Right? They would see this, this Jewish community as God's people. What, what happens to the church? The community of God is now under Christ, is the body of Christ. And this replaces Judaism. With Christianity. And yet, what do we even read here? We read that Jews by birth who have accepted Christ and Christianity should know better than to be justified by the works of the law. And their understanding of their justification was what? Was shown in the way that they lived. The way that Peter and Barnabas and the other Jews were responding to the Gentile sinners by separating from them demonstrated that they weren't thinking the way that true Christianity is to be understood. The way they were acting was as if their Jewishness and upholding their Jewish cleanliness and purity and whatever This keeping of the Jewish law that caused him to separate from the Gentiles and eat differently from him. Maybe here, Peter, who saw the vision of coming down from heaven, this carpet full of all sorts of food, which pig was included, and therefore bacon is okay to eat, and I praise God every day I eat bacon for that fact. All right? He sees that come down, and yet now he's in Antioch, and there's the Gentiles eating their bacon, and before the Jews came, he was eating bacon with them. After Jews came, he's like, oh, I can't eat bacon. I'm not a sinner like you. Eat bacon. Good thing bacon eating is not a sin any longer. Right. So, So with all that, we understand that not only was it a problem for Jews, seeking to understand the Old Testament, to fall into a wrong understanding that the law might justify, but it was also a problem of Christians thinking that they 
might be able to add something to justification by their works. That somehow they're more acceptable to God if I, if I put distance between me and these Gentile sinners. But what does Paul do? What does Paul do? Well, first of all, he affirms that the Gentiles are sinners. We're Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Why does he say it like that? Because they didn't have the law. They didn't have the knowledge of what, how God desired for his people to live. When does that come? That comes through Christ now and the law of Christ and their opportunity to hear the gospel from people like Peter who actually did preach to Gentiles and Paul who, who has been given this commission to preach to Gentiles. Now they're able to hear that. They're able to see Jesus Christ can save them and that they no longer have to remain sinners destined for an eternity apart from God, but now they can be sinners saved by grace. Yeah, they are sinners, but notice how Paul, at, at first, he's like, oh, Jews, by birth, it's not Gentile sinners, but notice how he levels the playing field. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. What does he do? He takes what a wrong view that some might have of Jew and Gentile and says, but, but none of us are justified by the works of the law. He takes the Jew and goes, we're right there with them. We are right here with the Gentile sinner. We are sinners, and none of our works can save us. No, we cannot add to our justification. We cannot add to a, a right view of God towards us. It cannot happen. And in turn, as he does that with the Jews, Gentile sinners... They don't even have the law. They don't know how God desires for them to live. Oh, we're Jews. We know how God desires for the live, us to live. And yet, throughout the Old Testament, I mean, how is Abraham justified? He's justified by faith. All, all of the Old Testament believers justified by faith. What does he do? He goes, we're right here. So it's not just Gentile sinners. It's not just Jewish sinners. It's all sinners. We're all sinners. We all rightly stand condemned before God. We don't have a right standing before God. We're rightly condemned before God. That's where we are. But his words here give us hope. Why? Because it not only tells us how we're not justified, but it actually tells us how we are justified, which leads us to our third point. How are you justified? It is by grace. Look at the last verse in this chapter. Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. But Christ did die for a purpose because righteousness doesn't come from the law. God's grace is not nullified. This is the avenue of grace. Why? Because it's not anything we do. It is just all God being loving. All God being merciful. All God showing Favor that we do not deserve. We are full of sin, deserving wrath. No mercy is deserved. No right standing should ever come about in our lives. And yet, what do we see? In justification, we see grace. And it is grace alone. We cannot add to it. We cannot 
gain it. We cannot earn it. That's the point of it being alone. Now look, it's going to be through faith. So grace has faith. Faith has the object, Christ. Like, and then we have sanctification, and then we have glorification. It's not that grace is alone in every way. It's alone in the fact that there is nothing we can do to gain it. We cannot build a tower to heaven and take it for ourselves. It can only be given down to us from God. It is grace alone. Today, when you go out to lunch, if you go out to lunch at a restaurant, you're going to go out probably with the idea of ordering food and then paying for that food. Right? You're going to go with the ability to pay for that food. When you get your food, you're going to eat it, and then you're going to pay them for it, and that restaurant is going to be very grateful and appreciative of you because you're actually paying more for that food than it costs them to make it. They are gaining benefit from you. In turn, the restaurant is to a degree indebted to you for you coming there and patronizing their restaurant and buying their food and paying them to do it. And they want you to come back, and so they treat you certain ways They are indebted to you because you bought the food from you're paying for it. This is not grace. Grace is the beggar who goes into that restaurant with no money, no way to pay for it, and asks if they might be able to spare him something, anything. In turn, when he comes in, he offers no benefit to that restaurant In turn, he is indebted to them for whatever they will give. I mean, both go in hungry, and if a restaurant is gracious, both leave with some food, and yet one is grace and one is not grace. What does this help us to understand? Grace is in indebtedness. If we come into our justification thinking somehow God owes us a debt, well, I carved out a little bit of time this week to come to church. God, you owe me. I served you a little bit this week. Did you see how I helped that person? You owe me. We don't understand grace. Grace means we are indebted to God. And, and this kind of grace, this justifying grace, is a debt we cannot repay. There is nothing in us that enables us to repay in any way, shape, or form. It is grace alone. You could attend church every day of the week. Take communion or mass every time it's open. You could could give everything you have away to the poor. You could go to different parts of our country or another country and give your entire life away, serving others. None of it earns you justification. Justification is by grace alone. God is indebted to no one. We are justified by him. We live under a debt we cannot ever repay. Nor nor does he ask us to 
we pray. This is His grace that grants it to us. It's through faith alone. Notice in our text here, Christ died for no purpose, verse 21, which leads us back to what we read in 16. We're not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ. Not the works of the law, because the works of the law, no one will be justified. Okay, So he's trying to make it clear. He says three times that it's in Christ. He says three times that it's not just, you're not justified by works. I mean, is he trying to make his point clear? I think so. I think so. It is through faith alone. Faith is, in our definition that we had, is the means by which justification occurs. Now, in order to understand this correctly, we have to understand the third point there, C, in Christ alone. Because faith is not the object of our faith. Faith always has an object, something you're believing in, something you're trusting. And unfortunately, some people think it's their faith. Faith becomes a work. I've got to work up enough faith. Do I have enough faith? Does God accept me because I'm believing enough? That's not what the Bible presents. The Bible doesn't present that you believe enough. The Bible presents that you believe in Jesus Christ. It's this faith. And why is it alone? Again, it's not alone from grace. It's not alone from Christ. It's not alone from sanctification. It's not alone from, from the fruits of the Spirit and living that out. What is it alone from? It's alone from merit, from earning, from works. Faith alone, not by works, not by our merits, not by our efforts. Rather, by believing in the work and the merit and the efforts of Jesus Christ. And then it's Jesus Christ alone. Why? Because unlike other religions that may claim to be Christian, we do not add anything to it. It's not the righteousness of Jesus Christ and whatever righteousness is worked up in us or infused in us. No, it is His righteousness alone. And that's why we can know that we are justified, that we have a right standing before God. Any work, any merit, any effort that's put into it by us to make sure it is done means that we cannot know whether we will ultimately be justified or not. But because it is based solely on the work of Jesus Christ. Again, he says it here three times. It's in Jesus Because it is in Him, we can know that we are truly justified. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives. That, that's how little God wants from us. <laughs> I don't even, it's as if I don't even live anymore. Now, that's not to argue we don't live sanctified lives. We do. We'll see that next week. James writes, faith, true faith, without works is dead. 
Like, so the, the faith that works should produce in us works. Thus, what the reformers penned, we are justified by faith alone, but that faith that justifies is never alone. It produces new life in us. New life comes forth out of us. It comes with the sanctifying grace power that gives us a transformed life that we live, the fruit of the Spirit and all those things. But those are products, not the cause. The cause of our justification is faith alone in Jesus Christ. And that faith alone in Jesus Christ produces all the good works that we live out for Him. Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves or the gifts of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then it goes on to say, for you are God's workmanship. God's work. Created in Christ Jesus. Not created by us. Created through Him. What? For good works. For good works. Not by good works. For good works. It's through faith alone, not through our works. In Christ alone. All faith will have an object. And the object of Christian faith is Jesus Christ alone. Who He is what he's done, everything about him. That is our hope. That is our trust. We have been crucified him. We no longer live, but Christ then lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Not that we loved him. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave himself for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring us to God. We didn't, we didn't go there. He brought us there. Through faith in Him, it is His work. Therefore, my last question here, why is justification vital? A, it is the foundation of our right standing before God. It is the foundation of our right standing before God. Without this understanding of justification, we will have no foundation for our right standing before God. None whatsoever. It's the means by which we know that God is our God and we are His people because He has declared us to be. It is also the foundation for our living for the glory of God without justification. All the works we do will fall short of His glory. But through justification, what do we have? We have our sins imputed to Christ, but then what do we have? We have His righteousness imputed to us. We have the gift of faith so that we might live. I mean, that is what is being described right here in verse 20. The life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. The very foundation for our ability to live 
any life that would bring any glory to God is not something within us, but something external from us that has been given to us. I am dead, and Jesus Christ now lives in me. And that is why I can bring glory to God. That is why I can live for the glory of God, because Jesus lives in me. And then it is the foundation of our gathering as the people of God. We do not gather this morning because we are good people. We don't gather because we're smart people. We don't gather because we're likable people. We look good. Some of us do look good sometimes, but that's not why we gather. We don't gather because we have a lot of similarities. Hopefully, we have some similarities, but hopefully that's not why you're here. Well, they're like me. I'm like them. You know, We have the same age kids. We like to do the same things. That's not why. We gather because we are God's people, justified solely by his grace, through faith alone, not of any of our works, trusting in Christ alone. That's why we gather, because we have been justified by God. I hope that as you consider these three points, you will seek to kind of examine even your own life. What is your foundation for your right standing with God? Are you trying to add something? You may say, well, this, uh, yeah, I guess I am, but does that mean I'm not a Christian? Well, uh, Peter was struggling with that too, right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's a Christian. He was confronted by Paul. You can, you can keep it on that one, Spike, for a minute. He, he was confronted by Paul. Paul wasn't saying you're not a Christian. Paul was saying you, you need to remember the true gospel. You're getting it wrong. We get it wrong sometimes. We preach the wrong gospel to ourselves. And that's not helpful because while we may not be lost, there are people around us that are lost, and we want to make sure we are getting the gospel right. We don't want them to think, well, I'm, I'm really actually a pretty good person, and that's just what you need to be too. No, none of us. None of us are good people in God's eyes. We need the work of God, so we need to make sure we have our right understanding. And then, what is the foundation of your living for the glory of God? Do you, do, you, do you think you're earning God's favor and indebting God to you by the way you live your life? Or are you reminded that you, you owed a debt you could never pay, and yet God lovingly and graciously, graciously justified you? And now, because you're justified, you can live for him. You can fulfill your purpose as a human being. You can live fulfillment. And the eternal rewards are great to come for those who are justified in him. And that's what you have to look forward to. So why wouldn't you live for his glory? Someone who would do this for you. Someone who offers this for you. Someone who, who has rewards waiting for you in heaven. On, I mean, this is the foundation of our living for, for glory. And then why do you gather with these people? 
Why, why would you spend time with anyone in this room? Hopefully, first and foremost, it's because we are people who have been justified, brought into the family of God, brought into the body of Christ. You and me have a connection that goes beyond any human connection that has ever existed. We have a divine, eternal connection through the work of God. This is why we gather. I'm not saying I wouldn't be friends with any of you in this room if not for justification, but I, I probably wouldn't be friends with many of you. <laughs> I mean, it's just the reality, right? We don't, all, we don't all share a lot of things. Some of us do, some of us don't. If it was based upon that, I mean, this, that's why this doesn't make sense to people in one sense. Like they're used to getting together with people who are like them, who enjoy the same kind of things. This doesn't make sense. Except when we understand our justification. Then it makes complete sense. And this, this view, this is why you should invite people to church. Because seeing this is one of the means by which the gospel comes to the forefront. That we, as very oddly different people, come together, love one another, care for one another, pray for one another. Why? Because we're bound together in Jesus Christ. That's the foundation for our gathering. Why do we gather for the gospel? One main reason is because we've been justified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these truths. Lord, we ask that you would use them in our lives. Lord, don't just let us affirm them intellectually. Lord, let us see how they are meant to affect us in our daily lives, how we're meant to live lives thankful for this work that has been done in us and to us, not by us. How you deserve all the glory, honor, and praise. Well, may our lives sing this week of the gratefulness we have for the work of justification. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.